Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview physicist Tanner Edis. You can consider intelligent design as a scientific proposal and look at the type of explanations that intelligent design proponents do put forth and find that they very consistently fail and fail miserably. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Tanner Edis is a physicist at Truman State University whose dissertation for Johns Hopkins University was Theoretical Analysis of Josephus and Junction Systems and Superconducting Superlattices. Luckily, he also writes on subjects that the rest of us can understand, as in his recent book, Science and Non-Belief. Dr. Edis, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. When people talk about science and religion, you tend to hear two major stories. Some people like Richard Dawkins say that science and religion are incompatible, and if you take science seriously, then you've got to reject religion. And some believers agree. They say, look, if you take evolutionary theory and Big Bang theory seriously, then this totally invalidates the biblical picture of creation and sin and atonement. So the true Christian rejects science when it contradicts the Bible. And then there's this other story about how religion and science actually complement each other. After all, lots of famous scientists have been religious, and science can help us understand God's creation without threatening religious claims. What do you think of these two stories about science and religion? Well, I think there's something to both of them in the sense that both science and religion are fairly complicated social institutions, so you can't really describe their interaction as a kind of a simple conflict or simple harmony. Though, by and large, I have to say I'm more sympathetic to the Richard Dawkins kind of view, that by and large, today, I think that the modern scientific picture of the world that we have achieved really doesn't leave room for any kind of uh, substantial supernatural reality out there. So, in that sense, especially if you're talking about the more conservative, more explicitly supernaturalistic forms of religion, they do seem to clash fairly straightforwardly with science. On the other hand, you also have a lot of more liberal religious people who have kind of toned down the biblical literalism and the more explicit forms of magic they believe in. And they're kind of, God tends to retreat to a rather vague creative force. And in that case, there is less of a motivation from a scientific point of view to pick any sort of quarrel with that sort of belief. Right. If God is just some kind of vague deistic God, then that doesn't really seem to conflict with a lot of science. Is that what you're saying? Very often, yes. At least it's not the kind of really in-your-face sort of conflict. You still can come up with areas of conflict, even when you're talking about more uh, liberal approaches to science. Uh, it just tends not to sort of flare up in more obvious political disputes, say, for example, uh, with the role of teaching evolution in science classes in schools. If you run into a dispute, this is probably going to be because, say, even at an attenuated level, uh, many liberal religious people will still want to retain a sense of intelligent design in the universe, uh, whether this is, comes through certain misreadings, I would say, of modern physics to indicate some sort of intelligently designed fine-tuning of the universe for life, 
or whether it actually comes to interpreting biological evolution as a divinely guided process. When it comes down to the details, these ideas, uh, I would argue, are scientifically incorrect. But these are not ideas that would lead to the sort of public and political conflict that we get, say, for example, in the creation evolution wars. That that really is pretty much confined to the more conservative, even fundamentalist, more explicitly supernaturalist forms of religion. Now, what about Stephen Jay Gould, who is often quoted as, as saying that religion and science are just different domains. They don't have any overlapping subject matter. So religion is about maybe morality, and science is about the way that the world is. Well, it's a strange thing to say in that it seems to be factually incorrect. Religion, as we have it today, cannot be reduced to some kind of moral philosophizing. And so Gould's type of non-overlapping magisteria thesis could be defended perhaps if the characteristic form of religion we have today was Reform Judaism or Unitarian Universalist Christianity, which was kind of non-credal, where the supernatural is very much in the background, and there weren't too many fact claims to worry about, but largely it was a matter of having a particular sort of moral attitude towards living your life. But this type of religiosity is pretty uncommon throughout the world, and certainly in the United States. So in that sense, it really it misdescribes religion to say that religion is a kind of moral philosophizing. Religion's claims to authority are much broader than that in practice. Yeah, religions in the usual sense make a great deal of factual claims about the world that science can say something about. Now, the usual way of doing science is to say that you can't explain something by saying it must be magic, because that just stops the whole scientific investigation, or perhaps because magic can't be a good explanation. But others say that science should expand its horizons and accept magic as a potential explanation for certain things that we can't otherwise explain. What's your take on this methodological naturalism of the sciences? My approach to methodological naturalism may be somewhat different than what is most common in circles particularly concerned, say, with defending evolution education, in that I tend to see methodological naturalism not as some kind of hard and fast rule or a prior constraint on science. I read it as a good policy if you want to learn about the world and the reason that we know it's good policy is, I think, our historical experience that, in fact, non-naturalistic ways of explaining things have not worked out. They have consistently failed in the face of uh, naturalistic alternatives. So in that sense, if you're going out to try and explain a puzzle in the world right now, I think you should try and explain things without resorting to magic. But that's very different from saying that somehow supernatural explanations, magical explanations are ruled out of court that they are not worthy of scientific consideration at all. I mean, we might be mistaken. And historically, in the development of science, there was a period in which it was very much up in the air where things were going to come down. And so when, say, an intelligent design proponent says that an intelligent design kind of explanation for uh, patterns they identify in the universe should be considered scientifically, I tend to agree. 
except that what I would then say was that, yes, in fact, you can consider intelligent design as a scientific proposal and look at the type of explanations that intelligent design proponents do put forth and find that they very consistently fail and fail miserably. So in that sense, I would argue that when we're looking at supernatural claims in science, and we do, we don't dismiss them out of hand without consideration. We are perfectly well equipped to take them on board as possible explanations. It's just that they have been a consistently unsuccessful, unproductive form of explaining things in the world as we have it right now. Yes, and I'm quite sympathetic to that view. I think one worry that a lot of scientists have is that if we start accepting say intelligent design explanations as legitimate type of science whether or not it's a successful science is that this will let these creationists get published in scientific journals and that'll give them more of an appearance of legitimacy than it really deserves as it would end up to be very bad science and also that it would really hinder scientific progress to be going down all these rabbit trails of magical explanations for this, magical explanations for that. How would you respond to that concern? There is some substance to the concern, but I think that substance affects not so much the practice of science. I don't see too many serious scientists who would be tempted to explore magical explanations in any great depth today because the naturalistic alternative is so much more successful. Uh, it might have more of an effect in the public arena. But even there, I think it's worthwhile to take what I think is a more accurate stand to say that we are not ruling magic out of court. We have good reasons to reject it. And it may be worthwhile to explain, even in a more public, more educational context, what some of these reasons are. So in that sense, I think I would try to be a little bit more sophisticated, perhaps. Well, your own science, physics, has uncovered a universe more astonishing than we could possibly have imagined. How well does physics fit with the claims of, for example, Christianity and Islam? An interesting question in the sense that there's a lot of what's going on in physics that seems to be completely almost a sort of orthogonal to what religions are concerned with. So there's actually a lot that goes on in physics that is perfectly acceptable to even some very conservative Christians and Muslims and so forth. Where I would say that there's a point of friction largely comes about when you're considering the more ambitious, more broader framework of explanation that modern physics has brought to understanding our world, in the sense that when we look at the kind of world we inhabit as described by modern physics, both in a cosmological sense and down to, say, fundamental theories such as quantum mechanics, where essentially things happen randomly, something that was never anticipated by really any of our intellectual traditions, not just religious, but secular traditions as well, it becomes, I think, very difficult to imagine that this is the sort of universe that was at all anticipated by our ancient religious and philosophical traditions. It's just too weird and too different. Yes, and you go into a lot more detail in your book, Science and Non-Belief, so people should really pick that up. Now, what about the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. Isn't this a 
new scientific discovery about the universal constants of the universe that fits better with theism than perhaps with naturalism? Well, it depends on, of course, how you see fine-tuning. I would not describe fine-tuning as, in any sense, some kind of established results or discovery of modern physics. Largely, fine-tuning, when there's suspicion of it, is something that takes uh, place at the kind of edges of our knowledge, when we don't quite have the proper background theory to actually figure out how the parameters in question really could have been physically determined or not. So typically, when a physicist sees a fine-tuning issue, we don't think of this as a sign of magic. And fine-tuning type issues appear uh, often in physics, and not just in the cosmological context either. And typically what this means to a physicist is to say, oh, there's something that we don't exactly know about here, so we need to do some more physics, learn a little bit more about um, perhaps a deeper layer of physics that underlies the current phenomenon, and then we can understand why we're getting this fine-tuning type of effect. And very often, say, when we do understand things, we discover the constraints, uh, we discover how a system might be driven to certain critical values or parameters, and really the fine-tuning invariably goes away. So in that sense, physicists typically are not necessarily bothered by fine-tuning. It's usually just an indication that there is sort of exciting new physics out there if we manage to dig in deep enough. What's happening when fine-tuning suspicions are used by, say, religious apologists to argue for a particular supernatural belief is that they're short-circuiting this process of doing physics in the sense that they're not saying, oh, there might be some interesting new physics over here, let's look deeper at this phenomenon. What they're saying is that, oops, let's sort of cut off investigation right over here and say that there is a supernatural design responsible for what's happening, and somehow we're supposed to all go home and be satisfied with what is very much a non-explanation. Saying that something that looks fine-tuned was designed by God really doesn't tell us anything about the physics. It's just repeating something about physics that we already know and stamping a fake explanation on top of it. So I am not inclined to take theistic fine-tuning arguments seriously at all. I think this is, in fact, a more disreputable form of argument even compared to, say, creationism, because there's no possible substance over there. At least with creationism, it could have been right. It isn't, but it could have been. Just a fine-tuning argument on its own, in terms of its physical non-substance, is just bewildering, really. Now, what are some examples of where else in physics scientists have un uncovered a kind of fine-tuning situation, and then they look deeper, and it turned out to be the result of more fundamental physics? One area of physics, which in fact a much larger number of physicists work in, uh, but since it really doesn't touch on religion directly at all, doesn't get as, as much attention in this context, is condensed matter physics. And one way that condensed matter physics can sometimes contribute to this sort of thing is uh, you very often run into systems where some physical parameters are at or very close to their critical values. And in condensed matter physics and in statistical physics, uh, we've developed over time a reasonably good understanding of how systems can be driven to some particular critical values. So that's just one example. 
even in the context of cosmology, fine-tuning historically has appeared and uh, disappeared. Say, for example, one of the motivations for one of the main ingredients currently in, in understanding cosmology, uh, inflationary cosmology, one of the original motivations was that when you try to understand the early universe, uh, just post-Big Bang, in terms of the standard Big Bang theory, it looked like you would have to have some very close fine-tuning to make our universe work out the way it did. And even there, what physicists did was not to say that, oh, there's fine-tuning, so there must be the hand of a deity in this sort of thing. Uh, the physicist's response was to say that, so therefore we don't really understand what's going on necessarily. There has to be some sort of physical processes that would allow us to explain what's going on in that uh, fine-tuning as it appears under standard Big Bang model. So that was one of the reasons that was an impetus for the development of the inflationary cosmology. And this sort of thing still goes on. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that you see in the early universe that you can understand as perhaps fine-tuning, but that typically is a motivation for a physical cosmologist to go back and develop a better model to, say, understand the low entropy situation in the early universe to try and see if, say, ideas from current high energy physics, say, for example, some string theoretical ideas can help extend things backwards in time and so forth. But the main point over here is that this is entirely a question that is physics. When a physicist sees, sees something like suspicious fine-tuning, we start talking physics. And you start talking about possible models that would do a better job in explaining what we are seeing. And uh, really, there's no real motivation to expect that you're going to need to go beyond physics to solve what are on the face of it physical puzzles. So there really is no reason whatsoever to just stop and suddenly say, oh, this must be some sort of supernatural intervention. It's just totally out of place. Well, I think one of the motivations for Christian apologists to focus on the apparent fine-tuning of the universal constants is that it seems like there can't be an underlying physics there because these are the values that are built into the entire system of physics from the beginning. What would you say to that? They have an odd idea of physics. You could only state that these were built in and so forth if we also had good reason to believe that our current theories, our current understanding of something like physical cosmology has bottomed out if we were confident that we really had the most fundamental theory of physical cosmology there was out there and there, we had no prospects of going further. This is totally not in keeping with the current state of physics. In, in physics, we're used to being working all the time at the fundamentals of things like this. And physical cosmology is, in fact, a very young uh, subdiscipline of, uh, of physics. Uh, we really have been able to do serious physical cosmology with really productive models and so forth for less than a century right now. And it really makes no sense to me, both from the history of the field and from my reading of the current state of play in physical cosmology, to say that, 
we do have the most fundamental theories right now, and we have no prospect of going anywhere, and we just have to take these parameters as given, and therefore, uh, if we're going to explain these at all, we have to bring in some sort of extra physical realm. It, it just doesn't make any sense at all to me. Well, and in addition, my understanding is that we know that our current theories are incomplete or incorrect in some way because quantum, oh, yeah. quantum mechanics and general relativity aren't compatible, and especially at the Big Bang the type of situation, they just completely break down. Yes, and that's a good point. One of the reasons why there's so much work going on on these fundamental aspects of physical cosmology is that we know that our current fundamental theories are incomplete. This will turn out to be a very difficult problem. With any luck, maybe in the next couple of generations of physicists, we'll be able to do a better job with it than what's happened during my time so far. There's exciting times to come ahead. Now, what about Big Bang Theory? Christian apologists will talk about how for centuries atheists had to assume that the universe just had existed forever, while religious people had claimed that it began by the will of God a short time ago. Has Big Bang Theory confirmed this religious hypothesis? Well, uh, in the statement that apologists might make that the non-believing tradition has generally described the universe as eternal, they have half a point over there. But the way I would describe the current state of play is that from what it looks to us right now, all of our traditions of thinking about the origins and age of the universe before modern physics look to be wrong. Both the theistic traditions about creation and the non-believing tradition of an eternal universe both of them are very dubious right now. Both of these approaches, which have tended to be philosophical rather than physics-based, took a rather uh, naive anthropomorphic assumptions about the nature of time on board. And in modern physics, the kind of descriptions that we have of the universe as a whole, uh, including time as well as space, really makes this much more difficult. So we can have, say, for example, in current models talking about the universe, you can have universes, which ours might be, we don't really know, but we have models where uh, you have boundary-free universe that is nevertheless finite, which is something that, say, for example, even back to the 19th century, people would have a very difficult time even conceiving of, let alone anticipating in philosophical discussions about the origins of the universe. Uh, you have currently uh, models of physical cosmology where you can have an infinite extension backward in time from the Big Bang, but really nothing much is happening. You have, say, universes connected to each other like bubbles inflating continually without end. In all of these models, and do keep in mind that these are models, we don't necessarily know what's going on. The physical cosmology is an area where you get even rather important changes decade by decade. Yes. But the current models in play, I think, should drive us to uh, re-examine what traditionally in philosophical debates what we have thought about as a nature of time. It just doesn't work that way. If you bring the physics on board, talking about a straightforwardly eternal universe or a straightforwardly created universe, both of these are not serious options in play right now. Yeah, my understanding 
of physics is that there seem to be very few cosmologists who would endorse what might be called an A theory of time, where kind of the Aristotelian idea where that we're in the present moment and we're continually moving, time is flowing from the, the past to the future. Is that right? I would expect so. One reason for that is that physicists really don't care so much about, say, philosophical traditions of thinking about time. And our thinking about time is really driven by physical reasons, the kind of physical problems that we need to solve. And really talking about this sort of flowing of time, it doesn't help you do physics. Well, I wonder if you can give us a brief sketch of what cosmologists and physicists in general think about time. Obviously, there are several different models, but if it's not this flowing thing that we all kind of assume, because that's how we experience it subjectively, then how does time fit into the universe, just in a brief sketch? Uh, you have to start with general relativity. Even though, as you mentioned before, one of the challenges facing physics right now is to put together quantum mechanics and general relativity in a way that makes sense. But you do have to start with general relativity, and there, really, you have to treat all of space-time as a single geometric entity. And you talk about events in space-time, and it really does not make sense to talk about, say, the flow of time, because the whole notion of, say, simultaneity and everything like that, our naive anthropomorphic everyday notion of simultaneity, really has to go out the window, even with special relativity, even before you get to the gravitational effects you're talking about in general relativity. So that, even early on, was a motivation for physicists to start talking in terms of, say, uh, sometimes the terms used is a block universe, in the sense that here you have the whole universe, the whole geometry, including the past, the future, and everything like that. You just talk about that as one single physical entity that, well, you can do physics with. So that would certainly go against the idea of, say, a flow of time kind of model, if you can even make sense of that in terms of physics, which I, don't, I doubt. But there are other complications as well. This notion of time is where you have time as a kind of coordinate, if you like, of uh, when you're describing a geometry. But there are other physical concepts that tie into our understanding of time as well. Uh, one of the most important is going to be entropy, because the notion of having an arrow of time, even in our everyday experience, is closely tied to the notion of irreversible change. Mm -hmm. uh, we get older as we age. We don't spontaneously grow younger and things like that. And this has to do with, with entropy, with irreversibility. And that is a different notion, physically speaking, than, say, time as uh, a coordinate you would play around with in general relativity. So the physical understanding of the arrow of time actually has to be kind of complicated because this is draw together physical concepts that are relevant to understanding time that are somewhat independent of each other. So you, you have to talk about a cosmological arrow of time, you have to talk about an entropic arrow of time, and somehow put all of these things together and make it work as a coherent whole. And there's a lot that has been done on this physical understanding of time, but it's not an area where you have 
one complete agreed upon textbook solution is an area where people are doing ongoing and rather exciting research. But none of the ideas that are seriously in play have much of a connection to the sort of a naive understandings of time and causality that have so dominated the philosophical tradition. You really have to move beyond that. And I think one point here that will be very interesting to the people who are on my site is that you know, William Lane Craig will put forward the Kalam cosmological argument about how the universe had to have a beginning and the cause of the universe was God, but that argument doesn't fit at all with the scientific understanding of time. It depends on this older, naive, philosophical understanding of time. Certainly. I guess it's been some time right now since Craig first started putting out his Kalam cosmological argument stuff. It's been about 15 years since I first encountered it. And really my first impression upon reading Craig's argument is that he didn't give me the impression of somebody who was comfortable with physics, in that he was trying to draw on physical concepts every now and then, but doing it actually a bit ineptly and really trying to fit everything into a predetermined philosophical scheme. And so from a physicist's point of view, I think there's very little to be impressed with in that type of argument. Yeah, and Craig knows and has written that the Kalam argument depends on the old theory of time from philosophy, and I'm sure he's quite aware that I would be surprised to learn that there are many cosmologists at all that accept that theory of time. Well, the problem in a way with Craig's stuff can run even deeper than that. One of the things I remember that uh, seriously did not impress me when I was reading Craig is that occasionally he will just come out and say that his metaphysical intuitions tell him that things are so and end of story. Yeah. That, that's no argument. And again, it's, from a physicist's point of view, the whole thing tends to degenerate into irrelevance. I don't see what physical problem this could apply to at all. All of this is kind of metaphysical dancing around things and generally, metaphysics in that sense among scientists will use it more as an insult. So it doesn't seem to be a productive way of spending your time. Well, now, let's go back to intelligent design. ID theorists say that we can see evidence of design in the complex functional structures of humans and other animals. So isn't that some evidence that science has brought up that shows that the universe can't be the product of mindless forces? Uh, no. In this sense, intelligent design people are perfectly correct in pointing out that there are these information-rich structures that we find in our experience, and the, the prime examples of such structures tend to come to us from biology. And that there is something significantly interesting and perhaps different about such structures, and that, say, a more classical physical uh, style of explanation may not be adequate for capturing what's going on over there. In all of this, the intelligent design people have a kind of a point. It's not a new point, and it's not something that scientists had not been aware of, but okay, that much I will concede. On the other hand, the intelligent design people, they try to actually build up intelligent design as a real explanation. They do things like claim that they have mathematically rigorous 
design detection procedures that they can, again, with some mathematical rigor, demonstrate that Darwinian processes are inadequate to building, uh, say, these structures that are information rich, that exhibit functional complexity, and so forth. All of these arguments are abject failures. Now, it so happens that, as a physicist, this is one area where I have to concede that biologists got there first. Darwinian evolution really is uh, one of the greatest, most productive ideas in science, and I would have to put it on a par with anything that we have come up with in physics, because uh, it really does confront this problem of how do you create information, how do you create functional complexity. It confronts it head on, and it solves it. Mm -hmm. And you can take biological evolution as a very interesting and, and very beautiful example of a physical theory of how you create information. So in that sense, uh, intelligent design really has nothing going for it. It points out an interesting problem, but it's an interesting problem that's already been solved. So right now, intelligent design is an annoyance. It's not a challenge. Now, a slightly different subject. What about miracles? Can science study miracles, and do miracles provide evidence for supernaturalism? There are two ways you can approach it. One is to come to the subject of miracles from a historical point of view, to say that, well, historically, religious traditions from all around the world have a wealth of miracle stories. You can find them among Catholics, you can find them among the Greek Orthodox, you can find them among Muslims, Buddhists, you name it. Miracle stories are, are kind of almost a human universal in that way, uh, certainly when you're talking about the world religions. And there's something interesting, obviously, about here, because on the face of it, these miracle stories would violate our current naturalistic understanding of how the world works. So it becomes an interesting question to say, well, how do we explain these? in the sense that if we're able to explain how the reports of miracles come about in a naturalistic context, uh, we will have solved an interesting problem. And if it turns out that we cannot explain how reports of miracles, traditions of miracles can arise in a naturalistic context, well, maybe that means that the naturalistic approach fails over here and you do need to bring in supernaturalism. There's nothing illegitimate about any of this. Now, the way you would investigate this would tend to be based on what kind of miracle reports you're interested in. If you're interested largely in, say, reports of miracles performed by the saints, your investigation of what's going on is probably going to be more akin to the kind of research that a historian might do. And uh, I consider history to be a science, broadly speaking, and so... In that sense, it's something that science can be brought to bear upon. Or another point of emphasis, not, not really independent of a historical investigation, but another point of emphasis might be to say that miracle reports are still happening today in every religious tradition, and also uh, there are common themes in miracles. So you look at a more parapsychological type of investigation. And we've had more than 150 years right now in Western Europe and the United States in particular, a tradition of psychical research to try and investigate and very often try to validate what essentially come down to miracle stories as sort of superpowers of the human mind. And 
there is nothing unscientific about the notion of, say, putting someone into a lab and try and see if they have psychic powers or something like that. And this type of work has been going on for a long time. Now, in my judgment, neither uh, historical mode of investigation or laboratory parapsychology or any other scientific approach that have been brought to bear on this type of miracle claims has produced anything that is a serious challenge to a naturalistic understanding. Parapsychology, as I see it, is largely a failed research program. But your question was more about whether we can investigate these things, and I think my answer has to be yes. In fact, we have been investigating miracle stories for quite a long time, and by and large, I think we can account for the existence of miracle reports, miracle traditions. We can account for this in a naturalistic framework of understanding the universe. It's not that much of a problem. They're not real. Now, what about morality? It would seem like science tells us about the way the world is, not the way the world ought to be. Don't we need religion for morality? Well, it depends on how you read that question. In this sense, uh, you might pose it as a practical question, saying that human societies have to enforce cooperation among their members and ensure that you don't end up with this war of all against all. So you need some ground rules, some morality, some uh, way of uh, people in a broader society having sympathy for one another. And then you can ask, well, what is the best kind of device to ensure that this happens? Then uh, it becomes... Uh, perhaps respectable, I'm not sure whether it's correct or not, but at least respectable claim to say that for humans, for our sort of animal, uh, religion has been an important device to ensure social cooperation. So there might be a pragmatic way of saying religion does very often undergird morality, and given the way that human brains work and everything like that, it might be difficult to find a substitute for it. Now, as I said, I'm not sure that I agree with this argument, but at least it's a respectable argument. But very often, the way this argument is put is not as a pragmatic argument, to say that fundamentally, there is something about morality that can only come from something supernatural, such as religion. And I think uh, it's very hard to find any serious scientific support for such a claim in the sense that looking at people's cooperative, pro-social, what we generally tend to call moral behavior, uh, that is an interesting scientific problem. Uh, you, you can ask the question saying, how did morality come about? Where do the pro-social emotions uh, that people exhibit fit into, a, say, an evolutionary story of humanity. All of these are good questions. All of these have been asked and have people, very good scientists working on such questions for some time right now. And I don't see this sort of research as getting bogged down, becoming unproductive or anything like that. In fact, what we're getting, I think, particularly from people like evolutionary biologists, is a rather interesting account of how things like pro-social emotions are very much a natural part of uh, the human makeup, of human biology. So if the question is, 
getting an account of why there is, say, moral perceptions and pro-social behavior in the world, here too, you're going to be much better off consulting scientists who work on this sort of thing rather than somebody who's going to give you a religious myth about morality being established by tablets handed down from up above. Then finally, there's another type of argument you might say that maybe somehow philosophically speaking, the notion of morality has to be tied to something that goes beyond the mere facts in the natural world. And certainly, the more conservative Christian apologists like to take this account often enough, but there too, it's unconvincing in the sense that a lot of this relies on a very hard conception of morality, in the sense that morality has to be objective and absolute and universal and binding and motivating and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these sort of hardening adjectives you can pile on this notion of morality. And if you've done enough of this piling on, then, of course, morality becomes something extremely weird indeed. And it becomes plausible to think that this type of super absolute, binding, et cetera, et cetera, morality is not something that is going to come about in a naturalistic world. But then again, at this point, I think that notion of morality has lost contact with reality a long time ago. We probably don't have that super hard kind of morality that, say, the religious and metaphysical traditions have insisted upon. But then again, that's no big deal. Well, is there any prospect for developing a scientific morality? Is I mean, it would seem like, you know, we can talk about why we have the moral intuitions and feelings that we do, but what about that actual ought of what we ought to do? Is that something that science can talk about? not with any degree of comfort, there's a shift of perspective over here in, in this sense. Science is pretty good at giving a sort of a third-person account of the world as it stands from a kind of nobody's point of view. But when you're talking about the kind of oughts of morality, what should I do today, that I think there's no avoiding the perspective of the person who needs to make that decision in the sense that when you're trying to get oughts, when you're talking about morality, this is always something that arises in the context of people's interests and people's agreements. There's no view from nowhere abstracted from these interests and agreements that is going to give you morality of any interesting sort. So in that sense, when you're getting stuck in and trying to figure out what you ought to do as an individual or what you ought to do as, say, a collective body or a society, then what you're doing is not going to be akin to scientific investigation. What you're going to be doing is politics, and that's perfectly fine. Now, a great book on all these subjects is your book, Science and Nonbelief. Are there other things that you would point people to if they want to investigate the relationship between science and religion? Well, there's also my earlier book, The Ghost in the Universe, if they want a more academic approach to the things. Science and Nonbelief I wrote for perhaps a more general audience. 
And then if you're interested in particular traditions about science and religion, there's a book that I have that came out after Science and Non-Belief, which is about science and religion in Islam. Uh, it's called An Illusion of Harmony. So if you're particularly interested in how this kind of debate plays out in the Islamic tradition, rather than the Christian context, which dominates science and religion debates that we are used to, you might want to take a look at that. And this is a good time for books about science and religion from a skeptical point of view. For example, another physicist colleague of mine, Vic Stenger, has a number of books out there which address the science and religion issue, particularly from a physicist point of view. And I think some of his books are very good introductions to the debate from a skeptical point of view. Well, Dr. Edis, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, well, thanks for having me on.